On this episode of the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience, John Maddox speaks with managing partner at Sweetwater Capital Partners, Greg Paris. Greg has been instrumental in building multi-million dollar businesses, establishing successful financial operations, raising capital, securing competitive positions, and effectively leading teams through periods of growth, volatility, and transformation. The two speak about the economy, what to expect with the upcoming election year, how to be an effective leader, and much more. Welcome to the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. Listen in as CEO John Maddox of Fund Loans reveals tips, secrets, and origination ideas to fill your pipeline with million dollar opportunities. Your hair looks great. Thanks. You look great, man. All right, welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks for having me. So you are a, p- a private equity wealth funded fund manager, basically. Yeah, we have a we have a private equity firm where we do growth equity capital, um, mainly for mid stage, mid life cycle uh, tech companies. Awesome, and that that's blowing up tech. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a great run. Um, we're obviously in in what we consider kind of the later innings of a really expansive market, though. So, would you say the economy is is helped in your growth too? Um, well, we uh, we have a really specific strategy. So, we're actually sitting in a p- place right now where a tough economy is super advantageous for us. So mm-hmm. we do what's called, um, we're basically primary underwriting, but we use secondary transactions to enter our positions. So we're looking for top performing assets, but we look to buy them at a discount to the last round. And given some of the valuations that are out there in the marketplace, our belief is that we're gonna see some downward pressure on a lot of stocks in, in the coming you know, 12 to 18 months. What, uh, you know how they say history repeats itself, right? Or it rhymes, you know, it's, it's cyclical. <clears throat> what would you say if, if you were to make a guess or just kind of your own thoughts on kind of where we're at in that cycle, you know, with, with, uh, with the economy? Yeah, I love, uh, I love that comment. Um, we always used to say, uh, dependence on history is also as poor as ignorance of history. So Mm -hmm. I kind of believe there's a balance that each cycle has shades of similarities, but Mm -hmm. shades of difference. And so, uh, unfortunately, uh, I've been around the block for uh, (laughs) 25 plus years. So I was around for the 90s expansion, the boom bust in the late 90s and early 2000s, the financial crisis in 08, and then now kind of coming out with this extended bull market that we've had. And really interesting is the dynamics and shift that's occurred in the private marketplace. So 25 years ago, um, if a company was had a market cap of even you know a couple hundred million dollars, they would tap the public markets in order mm-hmm. to get the type of financing that they'd need. And in today's uh, marketplace, there's been so much growth in private equity and private markets that companies are staying private. You know what used to be four to six years from their first VC round is now 11 to 12. So there's mm-hmm. so much capital out there that companies are staying private longer. They don't need to go to the public markets. And so for, in my opinion, that creates a really unique problem insofar as public markets are much more stringent as far as filing and liability and responsibility than a private company is. And so as these companies stay private longer, um, I kind of look back at what happened in the late 90s and albeit business models were different than the internet hadn't kind of played out. I see a lot of things happening in the private market 
that happened in the public markets back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Interesting. So why do you think there's so much money right now uh, in private equity and in funds? Is it is there? I mean, obviously the rates are so low, it doesn't make sense to keep money in savings accounts. I mean, back in the '80s, and you know the rates were so high, people probably sat on cash. But like, what do you think is driving a lot of the capital infusion into these private companies? It's a great question. So I think you know, unfortunately, um, when politicians got involved and you started to see Sarbanes-Oxley and all the different regulations that came out with the public markets, there's an enormous um, expense to those programs and there's an incredible amount of diligence that has to be done. And I think, you know, as you sit in a CEO spot and you're growing your company and you say to yourself, okay, capital is still available in the private markets as companies stay private longer, Mm -hmm. money has followed where those companies are and they're still great performing assets in the private market. And so if they don't need to tap the public markets, they won't. And it's kind of that that continuum where if they're not tapping it, more money is going to come to the private side. And then Mm -hmm. if more money comes, they get to stay private longer. So you almost have this kind of extension that's happening from both sides of the barbell. So being that you think we're kind of like in the 19, late 90s, early 2000s, kind of what I've been saying too with uh, the mortgage cycle. It's kind of similar, reminiscent of that time, new product expansion, some regulations getting a little looser uh, in the financial world. Um, do you think that we're in due for, I mean, we've been hearing on the news that there's recessions coming and you know we, we see the inverted yield curve and all these different things. Do you think there's a recession coming? And if so, it, what what's going to be the hardest hit? sector. Yes. So I think, you know, you've got to be really mindful of every business cycle, right? No matter what business you're in, you should constantly be looking at all leading indicators, lagging indicators from an economic uh, standpoint. So first of all, I would take interest rate risk all day long, right? So I think when I look at the economy today and where rates are, whether they go up, you know, they could back up 50 basis points, maybe a to a point and a half, they could go down half a point to me. We're at historic lows and we right. have been for a while. And whether or not we're, you know, one or two percentage points higher or lower, really from a business cycle perspective, mm-hmm. isn't gonna impact things, right? So at this point in, in the world, money's basically very, very cheap. Very cheap, yeah. In some countries, isn't it like negative, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But isn't that because of a parity or something? What's the. Well, it's it's basically an inflation adjusted number, right? So at the end of the day, you have real rates and nominal rates, meaning what are you really earning? But then what's your cost of living? If you're earning less than the cost of living increase, you've got a negative negative real rate. Right. And so, you know, at this point in time, when I think about the cycle and interest rates, I don't see anything in the horizon that makes me feel like the economy's overheating to the point that we're going to back up rates, right? We just had a, a quarter or rate cut yeah. rate cut just now. Um, the reality is, is if you look at where we are, um, the globe, global mm-hmm. growth is very slow. Uh, America's been the engine over this last, let's call it 18 to 24 months as Europe started to mm-hmm. slow. And even now... Isn't China slowing a little bit too? China's definitely slowing. Right. The interesting thing about China, right, is it's very difficult to get a true read on what China's GDP is because 
at the end of the money, at the end of the day, you never are supposed to solve by investment. Investment is one of the variables that's fixed. You have a certain amount that you invest, and that's a fixed variable. Mm-hmm. In the case of China, what they tend to do is measure GDP and change investment in order to attain the outcome that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's an interesting time with China and all the things that you know we're seeing with Trump and and the trade wars and tariffs. I think um, for you know, 30 plus years, 50 plus years, China has basically, you know, been playing by their own rules, devaluing the currency, stealing our IP, stealing product from us. And, you know, it may be some short term pain here that Mm -hmm. we keep seeing in the marketplace and the volatility of uncertainty in the marketplace. But at the end of the day, um, whether you like Trump as a person or not, the policy and the willingness to actually impose what he's doing in order to keep China in check is actually something that's necessary and should have been done a long time ago by our leaders and just hasn't been yeah, done. Yeah, so why hasn't it been done? Like, you think, you know, everyone everyone that, you know, you, you see in the media just loved Obama, right? And we, he was a great speaker, you know, he was a very classy person, there's a lot of good, right? But there's some things like that where, you know, you said, you know, he should have done, you know, some of our leaders should have done that in the past. And maybe it was Congress or Senate, you know, and 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 not just the president, right? It, but, but do you think... By Trump doing this is it's so I mean he's doing something different than the past leaders and what what would you say is like maybe the reason why some of the past leaders didn't really you know smack China on the head or whatever that's that's a great question so you know look I think like Trump hate Trump whatever your position sure. is on Trump um, I think that what you what he has exposed at least. Um, in any way that you look at it, he's exposed the reality that politics is, is truly a career. Mm-hmm. And politicians have a lot to lose and a lack of willingness to go against what their political expectations are. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality of Trump is he he's just narcissistic enough and, you know, right. uh, definitely business minded, um, brand minded for mm-hmm. his own brand, whatever that means after this presidency and, and potential reelection. I think he just had the willingness and quite frankly, the the lack of shackles, the political shackles that most people that get into office Mm -hmm. currently wear as they enter. He didn't have any of those. And so he has this willingness to just do whatever he sees fit. And in Mm -hmm. some cases, it's obviously detrimental. And in other cases, there's going to be policies that that will prove beneficial for the country. Right, right. So, you know, you obviously clearly have had a great success track record. And, you know, now you're your fund manager, private equity investment firm. And um, you started out as an investment banker, right? Tell us a little bit about kind of your pathway to to get where you are now. Yeah. So when I got out of undergrad, I was it was funny. I, I um, I, I, I majored in corporate finance uh, undergrad, and I always knew that I wanted to get into investment banking, and um, just I always liked action. Mm-hmm. Um, I like kind of the entrepreneurial nature of, you know, anything that you're doing in investments, you can really control the pace of mm-hmm. what you're doing by the reality of. You can cover one sector, you right. can cover an entire industry, you can be a generalist, but you can kind of go and look for ideas and fresh ideas and thoughtfulness, find ideas that no other people are looking at. And so I always knew I wanted to be in finance and I had a great opportunity to get into the top um, technology investment banking boutique in the world at that point in time. What year was that? Um, 
I started in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent about seven years there, and we literally we crushed Goldman, Morgan. Mm-hmm. We were the number one technology investment bank in the world, and I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Um, I think about the institutional um, equity floor, and there was more mental horsepower. And it was, you know, I hate to say it back then, it was absolutely a bastion of men. <laughs> yeah. Really smart, smart, smart people. And um, those were some of the favorite eight years of my career and really um, fundamental in helping me to understand how to grow companies, how to think about leadership, how to think about camaraderie, collaboration, and then times where you had to have the fortitude to be decisive and, and convicted in your views, because right. as we all know, in markets and different things that you're doing from that perspective, conviction is important. Mm-hmm. So you saw a lot of companies, probably saw a lot of companies succeed and saw a lot of companies maybe fail. What would you say would be the difference between the real you know, leaders, the ones that are the winners versus the losers? Yes. Are there some specific stories you can share with us very much so so you know if you think about like the late 90s building up to the internet right. the internet was was new right and we all knew that it was going to be a basically O-L- a, AOL <laughs> yeah if you still have your AOL uh, email then we got problems so, <laughs> I know there's so. a few probably listeners that have an AOL still. yeah AOL Yahoo account that's OG Netscape was yeah. the first uh, browser did you guys invest in that uh, that's we not- actually brought Netscape public yeah wow. Amber Quest brought uh, brought brought them public so but there was a there was a really the reality of the business changing in this new thing called the internet which was going to deliver information right it was going to be the information highway the cost of data and understanding things like research used to be paid for were all going to be free in an open uh open architected system that ultimately for the most part has played out the way we thought but what happened was you had all these kind of what I'd call first movers, right? So there's always really smart people who think, okay, I'm going to take advantage of this delivery mechanism. But at the end of the day, what started to happen in 1999 is you had the growth of the internet and there was actually infrastructure that has to take place. And I'm a picks and axes guy, right? So I want quantifiable businesses. I was always a free cash flow investor. So I looked at all the things where, whether it was cable rolls like Eris Technologies, which was literally laying cable and, mm-hmm. and building the end points, whether it was Cisco routers, US Robotics was the first dial-up <laughs> modem company. We invested in that, brought them public. Um, so there was all these picks and axes. And then where you really started to th- see things get crazy was kind of in 99. And you had all these thoughts and ideas that ultimately could have been great ideas 20 years later when the infrastructure was actually there. But you would start to see three to five prospectuses a day where it used to be, you know, one one company a day coming public mm-hmm. and then you start to get bombarded. And the exit plans in them was I'm going to get bought by IBM. Know, AOL or yeah. I'm going to get bought by Microsoft. And that's not a business model. And so that's kind of happening again, right? I mean, that's Facebook's going to buy us. We're all building to get acquisition. It is happening, right? So we even in our business, when we look at liquidity, we look at the big 10, we call them the big 10, whether it's Intel, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and they are the number one acquirers of growing companies as they look at their venture corporate arms and try and figure out where's their where's their corporate roadmap over the mm-hmm. next three to five years. You know, cybersecurity, for example, M and A in cybersecurity is up seventy percent over the last two years, hmm. 
And obviously we know there's, it's a huge space, but there's also liquidity there. So you'll see this influx of people trying to grow cybersecurity companies in order to get sold to Microsoft or whomever the other, you know, the big 10 buyers are. And so what happens in every business cycle as you get later in the innings is you start to see companies that lose sight of fundamentals and the reality that earnings and profitability are the number one thing that creates sustainable long-term companies. Mm-hmm. And instead, these guys have business models and spending models where they just try and blast a footprint as big as they can in order to get attention, focus, and hopefully have a strategic come in and buy them. Interesting. So are we seeing companies that are not profitable that are getting bought? Or or is it more that you know that they, they hype it up and then all of a sudden they... You know, they get noticed, but then their financials aren't great. Is that happening? Like, is- so I think we've just seen, we've just had um, an absolute, you know, paramount moment in this bull market and this extended run. And it's the the pulling of the WeWork IPO. And essentially, what is that? the 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 company we work, we work, yeah, they pulled it. So they they were gonna they put it out for they were gonna go <clears> out. <throat> so in the private markets over the last let's call it seven years, WeWork's been growing and they've been funded through private markets. And each time you do another financing in a private market, you want your market cap to go up. Right. So the last round was done at about forty five billion dollars, and WeWork has no numbers. Right. They're not profitable. They're burning enormous amounts of cash on mm-hmm. per quarter. And SoftBank, which is a hundred billion dollar fund, you know, can extend the life of anybody by giving sure. you three billion dollars at a round. And so what we've seen over the last to. To the first part of your question, over the past three years, there's been a huge number of acquisitions. And then now later stage companies going public. And we've seen some very successful IPOs, whether it be DocuSign, SendGrid, Twilio, very, very successful IPOs. Now, as we're in the later stages, what happened was WeWork is one of the biggest companies to go out with an enormous market cap. $45 billion was where they raised in the private market. So they thought they'd go out even north of that. When they went on the roadshow with with the iBankers to go and place the shares, they couldn't even sell the company at a $10 billion valuation. Wow. So all those investors are underwater. Jeez. And when they pulled the IPO, there's about a dozen other IPOs right behind it. For example, two days later, Endeavor, which is the old uh, um, agency, either William Morris or CAA, I forget which mm-hmm. one it is, was coming out with a $3 billion IPO. They canceled theirs. And now this week, we've seen six to eight others that were either coming this month or mm. or the end of this year and first quarter start to talk about staying private longer. And so you have these seminal moments where something major like that occurs and the, they call it the IPO window shuts. Mm. Mm. And when that happens, there's no more liquidity. And so you could see some really, really challenging things happen to WeWork. Obviously, the founder got fired and right. they've moved on. But I think that that's the space that we're about to enter. And it could be a really interesting 12 to 18 mm. months in the private that, markets. That does kind of rhyme with some of the stuff that happened in 2000, right? I mean, absolutely. The dot it, just, com. it took place in the public markets back then because right. there wasn't as much private capital. So <laughs> all those same companies went to IPO. Mm-hmm. In this case, those same companies are trying to either sell to a strategic or go IPO. And once the IPO window shuts, you, you've got some challenges. Interesting. So do, does that kind of scare off investors? 
you know, does it does it pull back private equity too? Or yeah, it certainly can, right? So at the end of the day, a lot of the capital that's in private equity is committed capital into long term ten year plus vehicles, mm-hmm. and you know the money's there, and it's it's going to be called over the course of, you know, typical investment cycle, three to five years, depending upon the stage of investment the fund is doing. You know, when we had 07, 08 capital that was called didn't actually come in, but that was a very different time, right? So you were talking about potentially a global financial collapse. Right. And I think when you look at the cycle this time and, and very, very relevant to your business is I think the financial institutions themselves are in a much more fortified position. Mm -hmm. Balance sheets are stronger, stress tests are more stringent. Even if lending practices have gotten a little more loose, which clearly they have, um, they haven't at the institutional level, right? Right, So I think the- Chase isn't giving out loans that are, and what's crazy is the a lot of the loans that we're talking about, like non-QM, these loans, we're digging into their bank statements. So we actually can see up until last week what they've been spending their money on. We know, do they have any NSFs? Are they cash flow positive? How are they managing their cash on a day-to-day basis? Where, you know, if Chase and a Bank of America, you know, they'll look at their W-2, you know, their tax return from last year, the year before. They're not, you know, they might see their pay stub, but they have no idea if they're, you know, really how, you know, they might have some reserves in one of their bank accounts, but they're not, it's not as intimate as some of the loans we're doing. So it, 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 they, you can say that they're getting a little riskier, but maybe a little bit riskier, not like anywhere near the subprime time, you know, and there's been some articles that came out in the Wall Street Journal recently that said, you know, that they're starting to make riskier loans, but, um, <clears throat> You know, and that that is sort of true, but there's some misinformation about that too. So I agree with you. I think that you know where we're at with the banks, where we're at with lending. You know, it's still pretty restrictive in a lot of ways. Um, there's no stated income. You mm-hmm. know, and and especially not for you know anyone that's putting down. So before it was stated income, no no. It was like no income, no job, no assets, no down payment. You know, <laughs> right now you still have a major down payment if you're going to even get close to any kind of stated or, or very limited dock, you know, um, limited income type type of product. And you can only do those on investment properties as well. You can't do them on like an owner occupied property. So it's interesting to see. And then also I heard something, I don't know if it's true, but most most homes in America are you know, in the 50 to 60 LTV range. So there's a ton of equity in homes. Whereas, you know, in 2005, 2006, it was like zero equity, right? Yeah. So they couldn't even withstand a, a drop in prices. Like we could, majority of America could withstand a 10, 20% <clears throat> correction, even though I don't even think that might, you know, might not happen. If rates went way up, right? And then people couldn't refi and, you know, there's there's some things that could create a crisis in in finance and or in, in you know, real estate and mortgages. But I think, you know, what you're saying about the IPO stuff, that's interesting. And then the corporate debt has been kind of an area, I think, that they, they've said there's been a bubble in corporate debt. Mm-hmm. And do you know much about that? Like, Well, look, at the, the end of the day, to a company, right? right. Money's almost free. 
Right. So um, as long as you've got a healthy cash flow position, you're EBITDA positive, there's really no institution that wouldn't put, no matter what your business is, you could probably get two to four turns of leverage on your EBITDA, on your EBITDA numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I think smart CFOs understand when the time is to take that leverage up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you start to hit things, those, those companies will be responsible and they'll start to delever. Um, and, and, you know, that's when you'll start to see some earnings go down because you'll have financial engineering. So obviously the debt will help to, you can engineer where your earnings go by being smart with your, your balance sheet levers. And so I think, you know, we'll see some of that play out. Um, it's interesting to hear your commentary about, uh, just about the difference in equity and where we can go. So one of the things that I always do look at, um, you know, obviously we're here in San Diego, California, real estate's more expensive than most places in the mm-hmm. country, but certainly we're one of the high places in the country. So I constantly monitor inventory uh, inventory just in various pockets right. to kind of see, you know, um, a lot of private equity. We, we happen to be uh, an institutional fund, so pensions, endowments, et cetera, are our investors. But we also have uber high net worths. And so always trying to monitor where's their state of mind. And, you know, I've always had uber high net worths in any fund that, that we've done. And it's interesting because um, prices really ran, mm-hmm. um, certainly in pockets like Del Mar and the beach areas of La Jolla, Del Mar. Um, you know, you saw big homes in the ranch where expenses are really, really high and, and those fixed costs are, are, are up there. And then mm-hmm. you've got yards and water, et cetera. Those kind of have fallen in price and inventory's kind of been what it is. But you had this really big price jump, especially in Del Mar, California, where I, I've watched for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And almost like a it's 70 to 80% over the last three to four years. And now what I'm seeing there is prices haven't come down at all, but inventory went from like 45 homes seven or eight months ago to now there's like 142 as of yesterday morning in the MLS. So I think we're going to start to see some of those things in, in your business Mm -hmm. as well, where I think pricing is going to just start to soften. And, but you, you know, you always have pockets of places where, where people are either downsizing too, or, Mm -hmm. and it's funny. I've been in I've been in Del Mar Rancho Santa Fe for the last 28 years, right. and the cycle of why I go there <laughs> is exactly what I just explained. There'll be times where the beach areas go up in price because people want to downsize from those big homes. All right. of a sudden, the price is spiked, and the homes out in the in the ranch are down. So I'll sell <laughs> I don't the beach really like house the ocean anymore. Yeah. It's too much salt water. Hey, it's only too three miles. Rust. What the heck? <laughs> I'm gonna go. My car's getting rusty. I'm gonna go move inland and have a little more land. You know, my neighbor's pissing me off. Or something. But I think I think your your space your industry is in a far on far far firmer footing today even if we go through a normal we will go through a normal yeah. downturn and right. recessionary type environment and i think that the the you know the the real estate market is in a much healthier place especially homes the right. the, the home market so cyclically uh, election years what are, you, what are your thoughts? Bad. So typically, um, you could have a run up right now into mm-hmm. the rest of the year. If we, you know, look, I, I'm very negative on the market right now. I think we've had a really extended bull market. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see earnings softness. Um, you're starting to see the windows shut. If you really look at the underlying stock market, there's a lot of stocks that are down 30, 
some 40 percent uh, mm-hmm. on the year or from their highs rather and the market is just you know six seven eight percent off its high and that's typical right so stocks have to lead down first the averages are usually made up of the leaders mm-hmm. safe stocks bigger stocks and so they're the last to fall typically in a market cycle the the larger names so that's why you see the market always have that kind of last move down mm-hmm. it wouldn't be you know, for us to have a 15 to 18% correction, you know, we've had a 10 year bull market. That would be great to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I don't like the market here. And so for me, I think being conservative um, around stock market, you don't like. Yeah. 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 Is that, and that's um, so going into the election year, right? So 2020, do you think that, <clears throat> I mean, I think rates are going to stay low, obviously. But, um, you know, there's so much talk of recession. You know, some people say it's because people are trying to ruin Trump's reputation and others is just um, that there actually is a recession at the door, you know, knocking at the door. Like, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think it's a mix or do you think it's one or the other? So I think it's it, it's both. Yeah. Um, and we, do, we there are signs, uh, early signs, early leading indicators that traditionally would tell you that. Um, we're going into recession. You saw the the inverted yield curve for right. a blip in time. Uh, if you start to see any sustainability there, then that's a great sign. You're starting to see, you know, like I said, um, GDP slowing, mm-hmm. earnings growth starting to wane and soften. Guidance is coming down. Um, so you have that part where there truly could be a recession. I think it's too early to actually call recession versus just a slowdown. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you look historically about an election year, the number one thing the market hates and that's being the stock market, um, which obviously tied to interest rates, um, is uncertainty. And an election year, by definition, is an uncertain year. I think if, um, well, certainly if if Trump had... um, a different demeanor, if you will, or a diff- a more presidential style. Mm-hmm. Think that he had done enough good things in this last four years, um, policy-wise, that they, there may have been less certainty, and it may have seemed more certain that he would be reelected. Right. I think, given where his popularity lacks in in the world today, I think we have some real uncertainty. I think there's people that, in the back of their mind, just feel like, "Hey, it's the economy, stupid." And he's mm-hmm. just, it's preordained that he's going to get reelected. I think that's a pretty, pretty questionable assumption to have given his personality. Mm-hmm. And so whenever the market feels like they don't know what's going to happen, look, you've got front runners are Elizabeth Warren and Biden. Elizabeth Warren is talking about an incredibly disruptive wealth tax. Mm-hmm. So that creates huge uncertainty for folks that might be looking to invest over the next 12 years. Right. And they may pump the brakes and say, you know what, I'm just going to sit tight. See who gets elected. Wait. Yeah. So I think it, it's a, it's kind of a self-fulfilling, like <laughs> we're already seeing slowing. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to have uncertainty. If a lot of that capital that should be going to into the markets to spur growth mm-hmm. sits on the sidelines, well, now you're pretty much certain to have that kind of slowdown because right. now there's no investment capital. So it's, uh, it's a time that's, that you, you know, the markets are probably going to be very turbulent over the next year. Do you think we'll have one of those big down days? <laughs> they, they come, right? They, they come every come. <laughs> Like when was the last big one? I mean, they come well, you know, you had one down yeah. 800 just about right. a month ago. So I mean, eight years know. ago, 10 years ago, that would have been really big, but oh, now it's yeah, like, like but, yeah. Um, so you obviously, 
you're, you've been successful. I've, I've known you for a number of years now and I've seen, you know, your success and seen how driven you are. Kind of what is your day to day? Like what keeps you motivated? What's like a, do you have any hacks? Oh, I know we're all so talking about life biohacks, hacks. life hacks. You know, I know I, 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 I believe in gratitude. That's one of the things I, you know, that keeps me going is, you know, also being a cancer survivor, you know, like every day is a gift. Like there's, you know, things you got to work out, but like, I'm sure, you know, being in the wall street and like fund manager, East coast stuff, you know, just, just going through seeing cycles, knowing, you know, your potential, like what, like what is true to you that, that really keeps you going? Well, first God bless to you. Um, thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I very much like you. I think that, so ever since I was a young boy, I love to win and I love to win. I just, you know, you didn't get eighth place trophies raising, raising my children. I used to get hacked from, from the wife that said, uh, can't you just let the kids win? And I said, no, I can't. I go, because you want to know why? In like 10 years, they're going to beat me at everything. So I'm taking my time. I'm I'm winning. And so I I love to win. I'm I'm intensely competitive, but also very gracious in losing. And I think that that intensity and that it, it, it's driven by a different place, right? I'm not, I don't go to work every day for money. I don't. Go, I, I go to work because I truly love what I do. I love mm-hmm. the creative thought, the juices. I love the deal, etc. And you know, you said gratitude, and I think that's really important. So, when you say what do you, what do you do? What's different? I, I think about the philosophy that that I've. I, I read a book a long time ago, and it was called Mini Habits. And mm-hmm. literally, it's just like that one step, that one thing that mm-hmm. like don't don't you know, walk out tomorrow because you feel a little bit heavy, go, I'm going on a diet, I'm losing 40 pounds. Why don't you just lose one? Right. Like just start, just lose one. Yeah. Yeah. Take a step. And so when you say gratitude, I think there's a few things that I do every day. Since I was 40, I do the number of push-ups every single day, no matter what. I try and do 4X, the Mm -hmm. number, four times a day. But you're like, I am not, if I'm 45 years old, I'm not going to go to sleep before I've done 45 pushups. That's right. And so now I do 51 at the very least every single day. Nice. And, um, and so yeah, I do one arm (laughs) clap in the middle, spin it around. It's, it's great. Um, but so a few things that I do every day, I make the bed. Mm-hmm. It's really simple. It's get out of bed and your first That's step. That's kind of a it's, mental thing, right? It's a mental it's, thing. It's, a, it's, it's like almost, you know, you have like check marks and you... And it's a win. It, yes, it's a win. You made the bed. My it's wife would be like, holy crap, what happened to my husband? Yeah. You, you, you've completely changed. But no, I But mean, it's true. Like, and, and you know, that is something, you know, there's some great, great reads out there um, and some consistent studies that have been done. Um, and three or four of the things that are consistently um, documented amongst mm-hmm. great leaders and, and corporate successes, making your bed, I keep a journal. And when I keep a journal, it's not a task list. It's based on what you just said. It's, it's gratitude. What am I grateful for today? Mm-hmm. What do I want to accomplish? It helps you prioritize not only your work, 
goals and needs, mm-hmm. but you've got to take care of yourself. And for, for everyone, that means something different. Is it music? Is it art? Is it wine? Is it food? Is it a language? Is it just reading and learning? Mm-hmm. Whatever that is to you, you have to prioritize time. I would tell you health is huge, as, mm-hmm. as you well know. So fitness should be a part of it. But I journal every day. I plan out. I thank the day. And then before I go to bed, I kind of review my day and feel mm-hmm. good about where, where I'm at. The other thing that I think is important is to get away from all of the the kind of bustle. And so I meditate every day. And nice. um, there's a lot of apps out there. Mm-hmm. Calm, Headspace. Is I have like to use Headspace. Is something in your room you do? You go to the beach? Or like, is there a spe- specific room that you have that yeah, you meditate? Yes, so I actually do have it in a, in a, in a second bedroom. Mm-hmm. And I have a little sit mat. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just go in there. It's, you know, it ranges for me. I try and do 10 minutes at the very least. There's days right. I'll do 20 minutes. But I do a guided meditation with a, an app called Headspace. Um, it's phenomenal. You just kind of, it's just it's a great way to start your day and just clear your thoughts. And, mm-hmm. and I think as you learn to train your mind to not be busy, mm-hmm. it's a really peaceful way to create rational thought. I so. bet you have thoughts that pop in your head, right? About stuff you got to do. Absolutely. Do you keep a journal by your by your meditation, or you no. just let it all just sort of come in and then organize yeah, you your go, mind? And you got to leave the journal out. Yeah. So meditate first, mm-hmm. then go journal, because it is true that while you're meditating, there are some incredible thoughts and ideas that will come to your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the things that I think is really important is we're so technology driven. And believe me, I love that. And I would tell anybody and everybody in your career and others, leverage technology in any way right, it makes yeah. your life easier, simpler, more efficient. Don't become a slave to technology. But I try to once a week go and sit in a room for one hour and I would challenge anybody that's listening to to attempt this and find out how very difficult it is. <laughs> Take an hour, go grab a legal pad and a pencil and sit in a quiet room for an hour and just put your thoughts on paper. Interesting. Don't leave. Don't get up and stay there for an hour. And if you do that for a you know, let's say you did it once a week or once every two weeks, you'll be amazed after six tries where your brain is and hmm. kind of the thought that you're you're putting out. And I think a lot of the best... It's kind of like exercising your brain. We become so lazy. We don't have to really concentrate on things. We can Google it or, you know, it's... it's Right? The Google machine. Right. Why do we have to think anymore? Oh, so do your true. children even know what a map is? I mean, other than a digital one? I mean, they know how to use the Thomas Guide? <laughs> no, no. They've never seen a Thomas Guide. <laughs> Speaking of kids, I think uh, I, one of the things that I was taught as a child was to pray, right? To like say a prayer, you know, thank God for the night or th- for your day, say a prayer to God. But kind of my evolution's been <clears throat> to say, you know, tell my kids to say their thank yous, right? So like, I don't tell them go pray. I just say, say your thank yous out loud, whatever you're thankful for, whatever you're, and I would say goodnight and leave them to it, you know, and hope, you know, I'd, I'd kind of listen, you know, so they'd kind of say it, you know, sometimes they wouldn't. Now, after watching, I think it was Dave Asprey, he said he actually engages his kids and says, tell me two things you're thankful for today. And then he gets to hear it out of their mouth, like two things that they're thankful for, maybe three. And so I've switched it up to instead of saying, say your thank yous, you know, and bye, good night, uh, to ask, actually engaging and asking them. And, and it's cool because it like creates this positivity that, um, and you could ask anyone, right? You could ask your dog or your wife or whoever, right? You could girlfriend and, and, uh, but I think there's something to that. I don't know why it's, but it's pretty like universal, right? It has to do with just, Gratitude is is universally something that attracts, you know, success in some ways. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think um, I think gratitude comes in different forms and different levels of intensity, right? And the thing that I would say, however somebody finds it, call it gratitude or anything else, it's that inner peace, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think when you think about gratitude, I think there's a lot of, you know, I think there's a lot of people who think they're gracious and, um, but it's, it takes real effort to have true gratitude and true mm-hmm. peace and true, um, and, you know, again, certain things where there's readings you can have that start your day with true gratitude, whatever mm-hmm. your religion, belief, whatever, sure. um, whatever walk of life you come from. But I will say this. I think that's really important, John. And I think it's great that you're doing that with your kids. Uh, my kids are a little bit older now, off in college and, and a junior in high school. And so I don't get as much face time with them. But uh, I think it's amazing that you think about gratitude. Thanks, man. And and. Uh- it's something that you have to practice, right? And and you can still have gratitude, but then also have ambition. So you can be grateful for things you have, but be like, I'm still not there. I still need to go do this or go do that, right? I mean, whatever. What what do you, would you say drives you? Is it is it you know ambition? Is it um, you know? I know you said it was the game, not the game, but like you you know you love doing what you're doing. You love getting up. It's not about necessarily money, but mon- money is kind of like a reward for winning in a way. Um, but would you say that, like, as a young person, you kind of always had this ambition to to do more, or were you kind of a, someone that just settled? I don't think you were someone that settled, right? Like, is that important? Like, how yeah. do you get more ambition to to become? Well, I think if you get to the place where you think you've arrived, you better just jump in the grave, right? Because um, I guess part of success is that never-ending thirst for growth. Right. right, and so growth comes in very different manner for every person. But mm-hmm. is growth knowledge? Is growth physical growth? Is it, you know, whatever it is you do? But I think that in order to keep the mind healthy, you know, and and growing, for me, growth and ambition is about knowledge. It's about continuously getting smarter. Look, it's it's natural things that. As a younger guy, you might have just said, hey, I'm going to just break down this wall. And meanwhile, there was a door right on the side of it. And as an older guy, you're just as ambitious, but you may be more thoughtful. And and that growth says, hey, you know what? You go ahead and break that wall down. I'm just going to walk through the door. I'll beat you to the other side. (laughs) You know, it's kind of uh, it it evolves in what the outcomes Mm -hmm. are. But the actions are the same. That mental just inquisitive I think I've always wanted to to do many things and be good enough at them and mm-hmm. then find the one or two three things that you're really good at right. and a lot of people will say well just focus on those one or two things and, and there's obviously credibility in those arguments and then there's folks that say well I'm going to be just a little bit worse than expert in those few things but I'm still going to be an expert in them right. and then have broader experiences I think as as our generation and now certainly our kids the world has really changed to an experiential balanced place right. versus materialistic let me collect and buy things I think we really want to grow and experiences and travel and different knowledge knowledges and to me that's ambition and right. that kind of well-roundedness and ability to have experiences all around the world like just think about your business and and how it is in the united states you know is there a mortgage industry in half the globe right Mm -hmm. are there even loans in half the globe right so just the the 
the awesomeness of where our country is and it's all because of creative ambition mm -hmm. that's allowed us to become the the number one country on the globe and so i, I think, think that never ends thirst people had to take to come here right it wasn't easy to get to america and and there was a lot of risk takers came here a lot of <clears throat> optimists because they're like well i mean i'm you wouldn't have come if you thought it was gonna be terrible so you're op optimistic you're hopeful you're believing the dream you were dreamers like so we have a lot of ancestry in america that is of that dna i think too right like i mean 100 i thought about that the other day i was like why do we have a lot of the most creative people the most innovative the most risk you know the to to, to start a business you got to take risks you got to be able to yeah, have optimism because a lot of people wouldn't start a business if they knew how hard it was. You know, it just become hit roadblock after roadblock, and you have to find the door, the window, the tunnel, whatever you got to do to to get to the next to get around those roadblocks. But um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is is based on you know our DNA from people you know from our ancestors. I agree yeah. with you. It's a really interesting thought that you had that because you think about it, right? You, you were going to sail off the end of the earth to get here, <laughs> yeah. so, so you the idea have of taken that risk <laughs> was pretty big. Either uh, my priest is right and I'm going to fall off this end of the world, or uh, this Christopher guy is right and I'm going to join him in New World. And today, still in our country, what seventy to eighty percent of the economy is based on small businesses, right? So right. You know, that's where the drivers are in the in the economy. Do you so. see a lot of that, like startups? Is there a lot of new startups, a lot of new businesses? Yeah. So, look, I think over the last seven years there were a lot more so mm -hmm. like anything in these stages it impacts all parts of the economy so right now um, when you look at kind of venture capital to growth equity you start out with series seed a b mm -hmm. once you get to c d e that's kind of like mid-stage growth capital where we work you know def and then you go pre-ipo and ipo right and so when you start to th see things happen at this end mm -hmm. well it's already happened at this end so um, unfortunately there's been a huge slowing over the last 12 to 18 months in the series uh, seed A and B. And look, at the at the end of the day, 20 years ago, like I said, when the private markets were much smaller, there was a very Darwinian nature mm -hmm. to getting venture, being a venture-backed company. Right. And that's all but gone today, right? There's Everybody's a venture-backed company because there's so much money. It was really, really a badge of honor and a challenge to, to become get a venture-backed yeah. company. Right. And now every company starts VC-backed. So it's it's kind of a changing of the guard. I mean, even Forbes has a had an article a while back a couple years ago. It's like new study why self-employment keeps accelerating. And total number of Americans, I think it's increased to 40.8 million up to an 2.8% from 16. Um, I read another article that was like I think it was like 50% of the um, of of the employed or of the workforce will have some element of freelance or self-employed by the year 2020. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's increasing, right? I mean, what do you think is attributing that? Well, I think that, um, one, um, is it like just the Ubers of the world? Well, so that's, they're considered the self-employed? The world's being disintermediated, right? And right. so I think, you know, with, the barriers to entry being so low to enter That's so true. many businesses. Um, in the old days, you think about it, in order to go out and build what Oracle built, it took an army and it took millions and millions of dollars. Right. Now today, like you think about where the world is, we're really entering from a development cycle, the API economy, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about Uber 
and you think about the technology they have, the disruption they've caused in the world, what did they really do from an engineering standpoint? They built on the back of Google Maps. They used Braintree for their gateway and payment mm-hmm. system. They used Checker in order to do background checks right. and and be able to um, interview and do all the rating. And they used Twilio to give you a rating system and your communication system. And then, yeah, the engineers did a beautiful UI UX. They had to scale mm-hmm. everything. But at the end of the day, they punched into those APIs. So now what cost Oracle 10 years and millions and millions of dollars somebody can go out and accomplish, you know, you saw Salesforce do it in a very different way. And now you have the force platform and everybody's building on Salesforce. I just think that that the cost of being able to plant your flag in the the ground with a great idea Mm -hmm. and then actually be able to engineer those ideas from a software development standpoint has the barriers to entry are almost zero. I love that you said that because it's so true. I mean, I'm even seeing my 13 year olds start to hustle like on little sites like Fiverr, right? Like we talked about and, you know, I mean, there's other sites that you can go on and just start doing a little, you know, things that you love, right, to do. And um, I think Fiverr is one of the most interesting ones because it's everything like you could even, I want to, you know, I'm going to pay someone, uh, 10, 15 bucks to go deliver flyers in Manhattan for me, you know, to tell them about a happy hour we're having, or I want to pay someone, then I pay this guy five or 10 bucks to make a flyer, you know, and then you're just like, you people are out there just throwing up things that they can do and people can hire you. And then you're getting a 1099. So you got your own hustle. You got your own side hustle, your own, your own business. And then you can go work at night for Uber and you can go deliver for Uber eats or you can go, you know, it's crazy. I was at the, in the, in the line the other day for sushi and there's a line was like eight people back to put your name in. And after like, five minutes I was like am I really going to wait for this and then must have been sushi lounge it might have been but then all the five people in front of me were like picking up orders for like Uber Eats or for you know one of those and so then they all kind of left and I was like the next person and then there was a table ready so it's it's great like I hadn't experienced that but it's really booming that in that way where people are just getting you know food delivered and then there's all these people working side hustles maybe they get off their job and so for dinner they go deliver other people's dinners or they go they do grocery shopping for people <clears throat> I forget what that one's called you know Ship. there's that and then there's Whole some uh, has like an Amazon uh, mm-hmm grocery shopper. Yeah. So, I mean, anyone can do it. No one can really say I'm an unemployed because they can go, if they want to spend some time, they yeah. can just open up an app and they, like, oh, I can make $7 right now. Click. Yes. You know, and they go do it. And then, um, it is an interesting time we live in really yeah, is really is. I mean, it's, it's exciting. You know, it's also interesting with the economy and with the, the, the nation being divided and, you know, all this stuff like, you know, there's there's some people that have talked about like civil war and stuff like in the in the United States. Like, I mean, this is crazy stuff. My but mother that would, said it today. <laughs> your mother did today. <laughs> I mean, but like that would affect our businesses, yeah. obviously, yeah. if something like that happened, Big right? Challenge. <laughs> you know, and, and and the odds of that happening are probably pretty low. Um, but you know, if people are talking about that, you know, it's. I don't know. I mean, do you think we're, we got a few years, you got, we got some runway of, of some good, good times or do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah. Um, look, I think that, I think the pendulum always swings too far right, too far right. left. And, you know, you always kind of come out and moderate in the middle. I think that over this last, you know, let's certainly call it since the 
kind of end of the Bush era, certainly through the Obama era, and now even more so through the Trump era, you're seeing that pendulum just really swing to the divide side. Mm-hmm. You know, there will be something that will unify the country again. Right. Um, hopefully it's not a horrible situation like 9-11 was, but you will have that kind of central unifying event take place again where people kind of come back to reality and understand that, look, the reality of human nature is whether you're right, left, middle, if we sat in a room and we got 10 random people, mm-hmm. we would probably all agree on 80 to 85% of the same things. I agree, yeah, for sure. But the globe right now panders to the extremes, and so the talking points are all to the extremes because mm-hmm. it's what we're click, still in the, Yeah, we're in the heart of sensationalized television. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Yeah. You're, you can watch people on the news where there were stories that would never be shown 20 years ago. No. Yeah, there's helicopters following people over fences until... And everyone's you know, a journalist with their phones. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's, so, it's crazy. But we'll see. Everything is sensationalized right now. So It is. So to have success, you've had to have failure. Absolutely. And the one of my favorite questions is, uh, do you have a favorite failure? And if, if so, what would you learn from it? Ooh, a favorite failure. Well, I don't think... Um, I don't think failure is fun, but I think that from failure are some of the greatest learnings that you can ever have. Um, Let's see. Well, mine would probably be on a more personal level, is what it is. Uh, I think divorce. Yeah. 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 It was, um, you know, it's a personal thing, but, you know, I went through a divorce and in hindsight, you know, you just think, could it, what would I have done differently? How could I have been kinder? How could I have been more patient? Um, you know, what would have looked different from a family perspective? And so I think as a human being, I've grown the most from that. Um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes when you're going through it, you don't realize right. the wake that you're you're leaving behind. And look, no one goes through that process in a vacuum, right? It takes right. two people to get to that place. But yeah, I'd say from that, um, I live with more gratitude today, more patience today, um, kind of more, I, th- I think one of the things that's easy as an aggressive young professional as you're growing through your career is to really just go full bore and, and push the limit, push the limit. And I always used to say to, to people like, it's really okay to crack glass, just don't ever break it. Like along your career, cracking glass is okay, don't mm-hmm. break it, don't burn bridges. And, you know, I think sometimes we forget that in the personal life and you don't realize the wake that you leave behind you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as you're pushing forward so hard mm-hmm. by the nature of thrust, the, the right. greater the thrust, the greater the exhaust. And sometimes as successful people, we forget that we're putting off a wake behind us. And it's so you're so focused looking forward that you forget to look backward right. to see whom and how you're affecting others. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a lesson that I really learned is that with every thrust forward, there's something going on in our rear view mirror. And you should just be mindful of, of what that disruption is doing. Interesting. So that's, that's good advice. Thank you for sharing, man. Anything you want to leave with uh, our viewers about, you know, success or about economy or just, yeah, I would just say, look, we live in the greatest country in the world. You, 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 
you wake up every day, focus on what's important first and foremost to your own personal well-being. Mm-hmm. And from that, it's going to give you that center of guidance and peace to go out and just kick butt. And, and whatever it is you choose to go win at, just do it with integrity. Do it with just complete fortitude right. and go win. 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 That's awesome. Thanks, Greg, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yes. Like, share, subscribe, and come back for the next one. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you guys are looking for more content like this, we have a Fun Loans YouTube channel where we give away more tips, secrets, and origination ideas. You can also email us at info at funloans.com. And if you've made it this far, I think it's safe to say you like our content. So please subscribe, share, and send us your scenarios. Let's fund loans together.